Promise Note Promises Women in Motion When we talk about performance, we most often first conjure some singular body in motion and that body's consciousness of its movement. We see and are ourselves conscious of some skin, some limbs, some style, some blur of movement, at once artificial and authentic, of performance and performativity itself. But bodies performing are not bodies alone. For who do they perform for and who with? The fourth Master Symposium in the series Women in the Arts and Leadership on October 7th and 8th, 2020 at the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel was dedicated to ideas and iterations of performance and to the way in which its embodied practices, its bodies, are often framed or received by narrow notions, not only of gender, race, class, geography, technology and temporality, but of what performance itself means and entails. A body in motion, for example. Whose body, though? And what kind of movement? Movement, indeed, is always both, suggesting something singular, a body and tender, private effort, and something collective. Presence, proximity, voice, movement, and performative relations are the tools by which many contemporary artists in unprecedented ways continue to explore how to create equitable space for our ever-regulated, duly delimited bodies. This symposium serves those practices, examining how performances has become the means by which so many artists and thinkers reflect on and denounce political systems that foster inequity, violence and binary relations at their core. Our various guests made explicit this set of relations. Between singularity and collectivity, authenticity and performativity, a language of narrativity, both visual and linguistic, Movement both, physical and intellectual. The complicated desire to perform for others and with others, and to read such performances correctly, was a recurring idea and impulse of the Women in Motion Symposium as it continued with performances, conversations, screenings and readings by artists, thinkers, poets, filmmakers, composers and teachers. performers all, including Kat Anderson, Julieta Aranda, Barbara Casavecchia, Mayra Rodriguez-Castro, Pan De Jing, Dorota Gaveda and Egle Kulpokaite, Ingela Iermann, Pauline Curnier-Jardin, Banu Kapil, Lynn Kwasi, Isabel Lewis, Tessa Mars, Sonia Fernandez-Pan, Sadie Plant, and Martina-Sophie Wildberger. Loop. Featuring Mayra Rodriguez-Castro and Barbara Casavecchia. In Aporia, I'm trying on egos, a justification for the planet's continuance. Oh, hello, transgressor. 
you've come to collect utilitarian debts, humbling narrative space. Give me a condition and wheatgrass. I, his body, is disintegrating. I, his body, is ossification. Death, my habit, radius, yeah, yeah. I, his body, can't refuse this summons. I can't get out of this fucking room. Tell me something different about torture, dear trickster. Tell me about the lightness. My mother told me to pick the one I love the best, how it signals everything I wish to believe true, just wholly on my ship. I jump all over this house. This is it. What I thought is thought only. Nothing more deceptive then. I, his body, keeps thinking someone will come along, touch me as like human or lima bean. I'm cradling you to my breast. You are looking out. A little wooden lion you and Peter carved on Bluff Street is quieting across your cheekbones. Not at all like the kinds of terror found in sleep, on trembling grounds. It is yesterday now. I have not had a chance to dance in this century. Tonight, I shall kill someone, a condition to remember Sunday mornings. To think of lives as repetitions rather than singular, serial incarnations. To try to understand one's own death is as exacerbating as trying to figure out why, as schoolchildren in mid-1960s Southern California, we performed reflexive motions. Cutting out lace snowflakes, reading Dick and Jane in search for their lost mittens, imagining snow. And this, too, the book I would want to write, the restored fallen heroic. Did you expect a different grace from this world or upon exit? I'm working on tough. They think I am already, already. Who is the dead person? Is I am sorry real to a dead person? Browning grass, my hands on this table, a contentious century, a place to pay rent, redemptive moments. Am I now the dead person? Dead person, dead person. Would you partake of my persimmon feast? The body inside the body astounds, confesses sins of the fan house. I too have admired the people in this planet, their freely ordered intellects, 
they use they've made of cardamom, radiation as well. How they pasteurize milk, loan surnames to stars, capture tribes, diseases, streets, and ideas too. Akila Oliver. I am committed to disappearance. The frail touch of a voice lingering in the hold of language. My argument, certain mouths do not die. The eye lives and is capable of rearticulation. This is the site of writing. To become lasting, not whole necessarily, but cut continuously in the parture. The lyrical cannot help but endure a textual score in time. Considering the poem as analogous to any other anatomy, with legs, arms, lips, eyes, what is of the fragment and the archive? What is of translation, if not a soft dismemberment and reconstitution of the textual and of geographic sentience? The word persists and disarticulates. The word suggests the body where there is none. Poet Akila Oliver envisions days as fleeting scores. There are days of grace, little days, greedy days, second sight days. There are days for seeing past the apparent, breathing the properties of a street, a fruit, persimmon, a poem, lacing the hidden duck that holds their figures together, tearing at the sun for its irrefutable unity. Today is the secret agreement, and one does not escape. The mouth of the world is wide, full of voices at each ear. There are elective affinities. There are indeterminate wars. There are slow massacres, sometimes without evidence. Minor inflections braid the single moment. On this morning, flower buds glare at the window. On a clear day, one hears past the immediate. Words land briefly. Hyena days herself a hunter. I enter cities at night, mostly, waking to the terrain of morning, as if flight were analogous to sleep. I arrive with the sun only. In his terminal autobiography, Dubois wrote about waking in Russia. Unable to close his eyes, he would observe the ritual of garbage collection in the morning. Describe the peering through the window. Before the choreographies of employment, the city must be wiped clean. He witnesses the phantom worker. The gift of his intuition is that, far from desperate estimations and dogma, 
the politics of a nation remain most palpable in the silent hours. Order is elusive. Day dawns, he writes, meaning day reveals itself in the most quiet pace. Of Russian Orthodox religion, he wrote, only one who has heard the chant of a Russian service, seen its color and genuflection, only those who know the gorgeous litany and the beauty of Russian churches can realize what Lenin, agreeing with Marx, meant when he called the Russian religion opium. His argument is that history is sensible and felt. I agree. History is mineral and polyp over reef. The dense curvature of mountains scraped in Mandarin, torn in search for silver. The new world was first a bird and a fruit, a warm climate, a dispersal of heat, a smell. More closely to my fondness of translation and recitation, Dubois announced, there is an eternal struggle and endless contradiction within a people who can never die. Writing occurs in this refusal. The writer, the translator, the reader are the people who cannot die. In their ceaseless dialogues, their senses are bound in atemporal conversations. Caught in aporia, aporetic, or without passage, without pores, suspended in semantic puzzlement. On being asked about the title Dream of Europe, I recall Audre Lorde reading in West Berlin in 1989. For most of my life, I did not dream of Europe at all except as nightmare. Some here say that Europe civilized the world. To me, and two-thirds of the world's population, it's more like Europe enslaved the world. 17th, 18th, and 19th century Europe came to the shores of Africa and bought my ancestors, packed them into sardine cans, and sold them to other Europeans in the New World. To conciliate dream, nightmare, and mirage, one must overcome their idyllic figures. To observe day and night closely, the stance of dawn, evening, their stammer, one must face their imperceptible transitions. One must renounce Europe. This renouncement irrefutably severs all pretenses of safety and haven. Solace was always false. One must renounce Europe. Haven does not exist. The continent is adrift, blackened by bodies at the perimeters. One must renounce Europe. 
avoid her singular tangentials. Robin Blazer writes, I am devoted to wreckage, and I too. I say that a dream is an impossible ground to be recomposed with flesh and word, which are as fleeting yet pleasurable. I image disjunctions, syncope, and breach. The counter-imperial diffusion, a desire for disruption. This is my offering. As Danielle Colovert wrote in her notebook, Under the Sun of Summer, leave fast, be alone somewhere. Flesh escapes. The archive is a failure. In reconstituting the voice of Audre Lorde, I relied on cadence, music, and tone rather than re-evindication. It was the cadence of the poet, the fibers of her presence that guided my punctuations and editing of the collection. Her breath and release as rhetorical architectures. I reached for the indents of paper sat before her words, the images of a garden where she observed dahlias condensed in a hand drawing of the flower. Sheets of unfinished poems bound in folders, words against each other. I read the stanzas that are annotated for future revision. I witness the preliminary form, the fragment, the incomplete, gasping sentence, the error and version before the sentence meets her public. The preparatory word constitutes a wider corpus of literature. In the construction of the book, I listen to pre-recorded lectures, sound and pause, and silence as scores to become still objects within the confines of a book. I metabolize sound into written units. Her voice became an order, with grammar bending, shining the intensity of exhalation. Then the voice sculpted meaning and time drawn out. In her solstice poem, Audre Lorde writes, My skin is tightening. Soon I shall shed it like a monitor lizard, like remembered comfort at the new moon's rising. I will wear the last signs of my weakness and dare to enter the forest whistling, like a snake that has fed the chameleon for changes I shall be forever. The collected seminars within Dream, Dream of Europe are incomplete, just as Audre Lorde signals in the original moment of delivery. I have no intention of finishing anything. I did not strive for the total transcription of archival sources. A finished picture is nothing but arid. A friend whispers the lines of love at first sight a poem by Wisława Szymborska, Into My Thinking. And the book of events 
is always open halfway through. The role of the audience is one of continuance. The role of the reader is one of continuance. Completion being relegated to the future. In reading, language re-enters the guttural cave. The listener prolongs the argument. The text is ravaged in the present in search for life. An intense yearning for other spheres produces a listener, as I am in composition, always another. There is an eternal struggle and endless contradiction within a people who can never die. Of a refusal of death, I speak of fragment, continuance, and archive. A mouth is a chamber angel. When God created her heavenly creatures, recites a hadith, they raised their heads towards heaven and asked, Lord, who are you with? A response fell. I am with those who are victims of justice until the rights are restored. I touch poems as relics of movement and thought. A reader of fragments. Mine is the study of the effects of time, of surface, of artifact and endurance, of incomplete voices and the processions of reference. The fragment is replete with undiagnosable futures, a lament on wholeness and asymmetrical affect, a vacancy made visible. The fragment, as subject of Rilke, is that which glides between fall and flight, still undecided, suspended in open air, an instant abducted from literacy. Paper dissolves against humidity. Words dissolve against rain, under the putrefaction of leaves. The archive is housed in metropoles rather than coasts. There are cities designed for economic exchange. There are ports of arrival and departure. There are cities designated for preservation, their skin dry, the milky sanitation of museums. What is an archive if not a fragmentary neurosis? to survive in pieces, elisions, and holes, and to oppose an ineffable rotting. Lord writes, we are in the most dangerous times in human history. The assertion is simple, applicable today and ever more present. How many bodies must fall at the feet of nationhood, silent, before wars are deemed sufficient and apathy becomes a crime of derelict, a crime of the mind? Before loved ones, I say, even the softest Mediterranean flower is lined with corpses.
I don't know, on the, on the thinking again about, about language and taking up space, Myra, I want to ask about your, how you began your lecture because you began with a memorized poem not on the stage, but in the sort of center of the audience. And it was like, it was actually quite, you know, most of us have, we've been even either talking by improvisation or reading at the lectern, but by seeing you go into the middle of space and recite something that was clearly memorized, um, it was quite powerful. And was that sort of like a ritual for you before you began your lecture? How did you think about the, like, relationship between the memorized poem and the center and then coming up on stage and delivering your talk? I think it's a, sort of a physical enactment of the ways in which I write, which is always, it begins through someone, through an author, who's sort of the channel for my writing. So I guess in that way I was trying to score um, that into a physical presence, right? The, it would be Akila Oliver's poem that begins the space of writing or reading. Um, and so in that way, she enters the room with me um, and then accompanies me through the reading. Mm -hmm. And then in, the, in your lecture yourself, you were talking about the, the title of your edited collection of the Lord's Seminars and Unpublished Writings, which is Dream of Europe. And, and you were kind of, you were, you were sort of playing with this title and of course I had to think of like forget Europe, you know, this line that kind of resonates in, in like kind of certain fields. And um, what did it feel like for you while you were working on these writings um, from her period in Berlin, being that you too live in Berlin now and you are coming also, I mean, from the Americas, but obviously South America, not North America. And this kind of, this, uh, this distance and this trajectory and the kind of work you're doing too, this work in like poetics and thinking and so forth and language in Berlin, um, was, were you using her work also as a form of channeling? Actually, the first night that I arrived in Berlin, I went to a restaurant, it was an Ethiopian restaurant, and I sat by myself and had some champagne and <laughs> Ethiopian food. Um, and then I learned uh, months after that that restaurant was actually Audre Lorde's first house in Berlin. Um, so I think I can't escape thinking of plays um, as a sort of tactile material the same way that um, colonialism moves materials around, but um, our bodies do that also. So what does it mean to touch the same building or to um, inhabit a similar ground years after? Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but there's always, I guess I'm haunted in that sense. Like there's always more presence, says, <laughs> than my own. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to also something that, you know, obviously for those of you in the audience, you know, but for those of you who are watching outside of that, we had quite a few people join us today via Zoom because they could not travel. Um, and so they are not with us right now. But one of those uh, was Lars Tessa, and she was talking about the presence and the performances of the ancestors in Haiti. And so I was also thinking about like all of our ancestors and our chosen ancestors and like Audre Lorde as being kind of like a chosen ancestor and like that, maybe that specter for her, for you in Berlin. Um, and 
I think I was thinking about it too in, your, in terms of your other work because every time I've heard you read, you don't just read your own work, you read others' work. You know, you're kind of invoking like a kind of lineage always. And um, so yeah, again, like how, do you think of like this, these, these other poets, these previous poets, these predecessors as like, as forms of ancestors um, or of lineage? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think from the lecture or the presentation that Tessa yeah. gave, she talked about ancestors still participating in history. Um, and so I'm interested in the ways in which we do not die but continue to exist, right? And that sort of inescapable loop of reading, writing, and producing. I want to bring in Barbara earlier today when you were talking about, uh, which, we, which we sort of touched on, this kind of, uh, to sort of bring the loop to, uh, to finish the loop of language, um, this like kind of conditions of speaking and what can be said in a certain era and what can't, and when the politics or the social climate changes and all of a sudden the possibilities for speaking get expanded, um, what that means. And I was wondering how you, how you see that in your work, both with like historical archives, which is a form mm -hmm. of ancestors, I suppose, and often in your work, you're like tracing these kind of, these lineages of, I mean, when we first worked together, there's these, um, Barbara wrote this beautiful, beautiful essay about this group of 60s and 70s uh, Italian feminist activists, poets who were working with performance and politics, um, sort of tracing a kind of lineage or a kind of heritage that had sort of been silenced. And so I was wondering, like with you, what you think at this moment in working with those archives, but also working with these younger practitioners, as you were talking about earlier today, um, how you see this, like the conditions of, of speech and language different now in this moment, what you see the possibilities as? Mm. Uh, super difficult question. <laughs> um, I think that I realize that I've been retracing I mean, a number of things because I, I maybe really needed more words that I had in, in the first place. I mean, I, I always was super passionate about politics, but coming in from a very different way of articulating politics, even through speech. Uh, political speech, it's really <laughs> tough terrain in a number of ways. And also when it, in my experience, comes also from, I don't know, super leftist backgrounds, at least in, in some situations I ran through was also hyper macho and, and, and very hard to deal with and often felt I was out of that discourse, although I was very interested in participating <laughs> in the movement and its ways of performing dissent and other situation in my hometown at large with a number of civil rights issues, etc., etc. So I think it, it didn't come with intention, I guess, but the minute I started to realize that part of that language that I was missing was there, <laughs> I sort of found myself diving in. And I think it's also a way of, of it's, it's 
a discussion I've been having a number of times, but I think the recent past is the one that we seem more capable, I mean, less capable sometimes to see. I mean, it's like, oh, those, I don't know, terrible 90s outfits or something <laughs> you don't really want to see anymore in your life, and then they're suddenly <laughs> super cool. And <laughs> it's just like a very silly example, but it's not even mine. It comes from Dan Graham, who I mean, <laughs> sort of brought it up really smartly, I think. And um, so I think I needed to retrace a number of things, going back to the generation of my mother, but also, I mean, tough story there, but how do you relate with what's coming before you and what you want to do with it? And also, how do you avoid, I mean, putting stuff into sort of nostalgic boxes where, I mean, everything is so safe, but then what you do with it, I mean, what, what you can try and do with it. And I think that it's, it's in this tension of, of going back and forth, but also see how other people want to use the same box in, in a different way and how um, artistic practice, but also it's kind of political practice, I'd say, can be articulated around that. And I think Italy is, I don't know, I, I, I always talk about, I mean, Italian politics. It's one of my obsessions, I'm afraid. I mean, like you, Valencia. <laughs> but, um, because, I mean, we've been quite a political lab in a number of ways. I mean, and we had fascism, and then we had one of the biggest communist parties in, in Western Europe, at least, or whatever. And then we had the 60s, and then we almost had, I mean, civil war, and then we had the bombings and terrorism, and then all the hedonism of the 80s, and then we had Berlusconi and all the politics which came with that, which then reproduced itself in a number of ways. And then, and now we have the sort of super right, and not only, I mean, which is pushing so much mm -hmm. from several sides and how consensus is built. And we are in a position in the Mediterranean, which puts us, I mean, naturally by geography, I would say, in a line where people need to cross and a number of situations have been changing, I mean, over and over again. I think I, I remember the first time, I mean, thinking about Documenta, I mean, the first time I saw a piece of art discussing that issue was Solid Sea. And I think it's more than, I mean, it's almost 20 years ago. And, and the, the situation seems to be repeating itself in a number of ways. So, I think it's, it's interesting to be in that context, <laughs> although it's difficult. And how do you try and, and, and keep saying those things or trying and using a certain type of language, no matter what? Because, I mean, decades are changing and, and politics are changing, but it's as if there is a constant need to look into certain materials and, and keep them. I mean, the archives in Milan, the one I I mean, I introduced very briefly and very, I mean, too shortly anyway, the one Daphne worked on, they're all struggling because, I mean, they are the outcome of personal desires 
to keep the archive going, to keep it alive, to open it to other people, to give it some meaning. So it's not that they're sort of really beautifully well-funded, <laughs> comfortable <laughs> institutions. They're all super small and, and kind of self-sustaining situation quite often. So I, I think it's, in, it's important to, to, to use that too and to give it some room. This morning I thought, during the lecture, I think, and during the day, how, you know, how your lecture made me reflect on something I did not thought. Did I came here, like all these six years, I did not thought about it. Which is like all the tools for political sexual education that some very needy context created, and then all of a sudden, I decided, like, you know, I was kind of realizing that I don't have anything of that around me, that I don't know anything about those tools here. And I don't know, they might, I think I'm sure they exist, but they are invisible to me in a way that I just concentrate in another thing and probably at the same time started to assume that because, yeah, the society is in another point, they kind of perhaps don't need it to realize that they needed it even more, even if this uh, level of political sophistication and ways of decision-making that go far beyond what we have experienced in the South, in Spain, you in Italy, and in many other of the contexts that many of us come from, and we have been talking about these two days. And yet still, I think that it would be really interesting to kind of really render them visible, these efforts, and how different the structures are and the energies that they created. And on the one hand, you think, oh, there is, you know, these libraries for political education, for creating an awareness about the tools that, and the language that you need to address certain transformations. And we were talking about performance in the same way. And then um, we have been moving through the day in, in these kind of directions, and I just wonder, if those walls are, you know, it's so interesting how every context produces a complete different, in a way, response to almost the same problems, but the responses are really, truly different. And probably if we spend more time and we are more sophisticated, then we would find uh, moments of commonality, but in the surface are really different. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that, but then it also makes me think that it would be important to, to even try the exercise of seeing the fic as the archive, no? the idea that you open the page of a fan scene, but you also could open the fruit and read it, and open a body and read it, and open a poem. And then you were saying that it's like, think of the poem as a body. Like, and then all of a sudden, I thought in my mind, so interesting how really so methodologically different, structurally different uh, languages, problematics, um, struggles, pain, but, and yet, the important exercise to do is actually to reunite them. So, yeah, I thought that was like, for me, a very pedagogical day. That's what I want to say. I hope for the others too, but I think I was kind of learning so much by just trying to come to terms. And then you may see that in separation because you come in a slot, you present, um, you come from a different context, then you attend to that. And then you need to also overcome that difference of the slot, of the slice, of the piece, of the fragment, and so on. And then 
make the effort to try to see that in a articulation, in a togetherness, in a mutuality, in a mutuality of care, in a mutuality also in the ethics and the values that they interconnect. And they are really different because, as you said, the etymologies, as Sonia, apart from doing the etymology of pan, she has been uh, <laughs> trying to the whole day to make us think about exactly that, the origin of the words and how this origin is not an essential origin and change in every position, like, um, like in performance. And um, yeah, that is not a question, but it's just my reflection on, <laughs> on the day, I must say. So I, mean, I, 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 I took I, the freedom of talk a la pan. To but I just thought of something, actually, when you were just saying this, which was interesting, because I think in some weird ways we had like thought of uh, Sadie's talk yesterday as a kind of keynote, Barbara, yours as a keynote, even though things were you know, quite mixed. And it was interesting because yesterday we were talking so much about speculation and futures and being like, you know, this idea against speculation, this resistance to this kind of um, apocalyptic thinking somehow um, that goes against, like, as Sadie kept saying, which I thought was actually a very beautiful, like, syntactical phrase, the work of art, but the work in italics. So the work of art, the labor of art. Um, and then today, it felt like, yeah, we were really, we were in the archives, we were th the ancestors, we were with our influences. And it was, again, this kind of, I guess, what we spoke about yesterday and today, this kind of back and forth. And that somehow seemed the kind of movement, you know? This, like, going into the future and then coming back to the past and coming back to the present where we really are and where the real bodies are and where the real life is and where the real labor is. And, um, and not forgetting the kind of presence um, that, is, that, is, that is like basically the work that we're doing. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, and Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Krajina Kulcic and ArtStations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch, that's dertank.ch, or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch, that's info.kunst .hgk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulcic. More information can be found on museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and voiceover Elena Ziesel. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Konrad Siegel, Christina Pavlovich, Vitals Brun, Chris Handberg, Steven Schoch und Esther Hunziger.
Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut du Souche, Art Stations Foundation CH 2021.